once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there lived a mighty warrior named Naaman. Naaman wasn't raised to be, perhaps, who he became, but he nonetheless became one of the mightiest warriors ever to live in the land of Aram. The land of Aram was a land that had a volatile relationship with its neighboring country, Israel. Aram at times was friendly when it served their interest, and at other times fought when it served their interest. In fact, Aram and the Arameans became so powerful a country and a people that their native tongue became the language that everybody spoke when Jesus walked the earth. Aramaic. It's what Jesus would have spoken when he was here. The Arameans were such a powerful, powerful people, and this Naaman was such a powerful, powerful warrior that he rose through the ranks, through the battles, through the wars, to the point where the only person in charge of Naaman was the king of Aram himself. He reported to no one else. Well, one day when Naaman was on a battlefield, he conquered a portion of Israel. They were in a skirmish, and he won, and as would be the case, he gets to take whatever he wants because there's no Israelites left to defend their people, or their property. And so he took for himself a little, a young Israelite girl who became one of his slaves in his household. And as the years went by, somehow this young Israelite girl ended up taking pity on this great warrior. Because from the moment that Naaman steps onto the pages of history, there is one enemy that he cannot beat that is unconquerable, that no one beats. And that is the enemy of leprosy. See, Naaman was a leper. And this young girl, over time, saw the effects that leprosy had, even on this great warrior, and said to him, I know someone who can heal you. Which is an amazing piece of news because nobody beats leprosy. And Naaman asked, who is it? And he, she said, there's a prophet in my hometown who can heal you. To which Naaman drops everything that he has and he goes to his boss, the king of Aram. And he says to the king, this is what my slave girl told me, would you please give me permission to go to our enemy right now, Israel, to cross a border, to go see them, because there's hope that this prophet of God could heal me. To which the king of Aram has to say, what should I do? Aren't our gods good enough, Naaman? And sure enough, he gives Naaman the free pass to go to Israel. And in an attempt to help Naaman, he says, I'm going to write you a letter. Not only am I going to give you permission to go, but take this with you, written by my hand, so that when you get to Israel, you can hand this to the king and he will know why you came. 
And this is what the king of Aram wrote to Naaman to take with him. He said, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, king of Israel, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Which is great, unless you are the king of Israel. Because at this news, the king of Israel gets this letter from his nearest enemy and the king of those people saying, your turn now. Here's the most senior military leader I have. Heal him. To which the king of Israel panics. And this is what he says. He says, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? I am in a no-win situation. He's sending me a man that I cannot heal, and then because I'm not going to be able to heal him, he's going to declare war on all of us, and we are dead men. What is happening? And he tears his robes in grief and in angst of a path in which there is no way forward. I can't send him home, and I can't heal him. And he tears his robes, a sign of deep personal and national grief. And when a king of a nation tears his robes, everybody hears it. And one who heard it was Elisha. And Elisha heard that the king tore his robes, and he said to him, send Naaman to me. And the king gladly obliges with the hope of anything possibly solving this quandary. And so Naaman and his entourage make their way to Elisha's place. And Elisha knows he's coming, and so Elisha sends out a messenger to greet Naaman. Elisha stays in his home and sends a messenger to Naaman as he arrives and says to Naaman, I know why you're here, and let me tell you what to do. Go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Seven times, and you will be cleansed from leprosy, the disease from which no one is cleansed. To which Naaman, rather than saying, this is wonderful news, says, are you kidding me? You mean that the prophet of God did not even come out here to greet me? I'm the the mighty warrior from Aram, and you don't even give me the honor of your presence? I expected the prophet of God to come out here and say a few words and wave his hand over me and to, to clean me and cure me of this thing. This prophet doesn't even give me the honor of coming to see me? I don't think so. Why would I dip myself in the waters of the Jordan when the waters in Damascus are so much better than that? And in anger, he turns to leave. And his servants in his entourage are like, Naaman, we're here. Like, you, you may as well try it. I mean, what's it. We won't tell anybody if it doesn't work. Just just try it. We came all the way here. Naaman is talked into dipping himself in the Jordan. What does he have to lose? And Naaman dips himself in the Jordan seven times and comes out free from leprosy. To which he turns around, goes back to Elisha's house with his entourage ready 
And he has a hearing and an audience with Elisha in Elisha's household. And he says to him, I am overwhelmed. What can I give to you as my way of thanking you for what you have done? To which Elisha points out, this is not done for my benefit, but that you may know that there is a God in Israel. We will receive none of your gifts. To which Naaman asks again, kind of like when you go out to dinner with somebody and you say, let me pay no, let me pay no, let me pay no. And he asks again, he says, no, 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 okay. And he finally turns, Naaman turns to leave. And there's a servant in Elisha's home hearing all of this named Gehazi. Gehazi is Elisha's right-hand man. He is the most trusted servant that Elisha has. In fact, when the widow lost her son in the town of Cain, he, he died. Elisha sent Gehazi out to represent him first. He said, Gehazi, go run to this place. I get there quickly. You are my representative. What you say comes from me. You are my right-hand man. When I need to be represented, you go. Gehazi, go. Gehazi is standing there listening to all this interaction and seeing the wealth of Aram sitting right in front of him. This military leader who has it all, offering so much and seeing Elisha turn it down. And after a few moments, when everybody is done and goes back inside the home and Naaman and his entourage kind of go over the hilltop, Gehazi gets an idea. He says, you know, I'm going to go see that man. And seemingly unknown to anyone, Gehazi goes and chases down Naaman and lies to him and says, Naaman, Naaman, excuse me, before you head home, my master Elisha told me to come see you because we had somebody come just now to our home who is in need. If the offer still stands, would you mind giving to us a little bit of silver and maybe some clothing to help with this need? To which Naaman so gladly is glad to offer back a thanks for all that has been done for him. And he says, gladly, and he gets down off of his horse and gives to Gehazi silver and change of clothes, new clothes for his need. Gehazi takes this and comes back home and tries to tuck it into the closet before anybody sees. And when he gets back, Elisha is there waiting for him. And Elisha says to Gehazi, where have you been? And with his hand still in the cookie jar, he says, Nowhere. To which Elisha says this, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants and maidservants? Is this the time, Gehazi? The question is, what will happen To Gehazi, the most trusted servant, the prophet of God, Elisha. And the punishment for Gehazi is this. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. And just like that, leprosy's legend as the most feared disease in antiquity, grew exponentially. Just like that. 
leprosy is not just a physical disease, but it is a spiritual punishment from God. And this story is retold and retold and retold and retold in centuries of Jewish tradition to underscore leprosy is not just a physical problem, but is a sign of a spiritual betrayal. It's the ancient scarlet letter that will never come off of you. You are not just physically unclean. You are spiritually punished. See, leprosy, while being certainly physical, and here's how leprosy works. Leprosy starts with little specks on the eyelids and moves to the palms with little white specks, and it slowly creeps across the body, turning any hair that it finds bleached white. This skin disease ultimately then creates uh, swelling and boils as it will go along. It slowly then creeps into the bones, rotting you away from the outside in. In Jesus' time, lepers were not allowed to live in a town that had a wall and enjoy the safety of that walled town. They had to live outside in villages to be in the free air and to be away from most people. Lepers in Jesus' time carried such a stigma that they had to walk around with their outer robe torn, much like the king of Israel's robe, torn, to represent that they are the living dead. They are walking around, but they are dying. These lepers in Jesus' time also had to walk around without any covering on their head, and they had to cover their beards with their mantle to, again, signify the grief of what they were dealing with. And get this, imagine this. Lepers in Jesus' time, when they walked around, they had to declare themselves unclean, unclean, as they walked through the village. They had to say that wherever they went. And so you could hear a leper coming before you would see them. And every time saying, unclean, unclean, further driving the nails into their punishment of being far from God and being the dying and the diseased, regularly repeating to themselves and all who would hear, unclean, unclean. This is the way the lepers lived. A social disease, a spiritual disease. And the people who could help them the most, the spiritual leaders of the time, went on record as saying, as one rabbi said, I will not even eat an egg that is sold in the street where a leper walked. Other lepers go on record as having thrown rocks at lepers. Other rabbis go on record as doing that, throwing rocks at lepers to keep them away from them. And this is the life of a leper. And so when Jesus interacts with a leper, it is a world-changing event when he does it. And in fact, I would argue the reason that you and I respond differently to lepers even today is because of the way that Jesus 
responded to them. He interacts with a leper in the Gospel of Luke. And I want to take you there to that interaction and this powerful moment of the Son of God coming to interact with this leper. Luke chapter 5 is where we will be at today in our series entitled Friend of Sinners. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one around you. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the third book in the New Testament. It's kind of two-thirds of the way through your Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you, that Bible in the pew around you. But Luke chapter 5 and verse 12 is where we are going to be at, covering just three verses here this morning. So Jesus interacts with this leper, and look what happens in chapter 5 and verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now you know what that means. Now you know what that means. Here's this man covered with leprosy. Bleached white, spots everywhere, blisters, robe torn, has been calling out unclean, unclean. And here's this grown man as far as we can tell. This grown man who falls, see what the text says, falls with his face to the ground and begs him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Is it any wonder why this grown man would fall to the feet of another grown man and beg for his life back? Is there any wonder that this man, any question that this leper was absolutely exhausted with everything? He was as empty as it comes. He had no one to talk to in the ancient Near East The leper could not even greet someone else because a greeting to you or to me would also in the Near East include an embrace. can't do that. So all of his life being socially removed from people and then when in a group at all going into town to buy what they would need to eat would have to yell out, unclean, unclean, warn everybody, stay away from me, I can't engage anybody. Is there any wonder that this man is at the end of his rope? That he falls with his face to the ground. What else does he have to lose? He has got nothing. He is completely empty, exhausted, worn out, totally lost in this life. And in that condition, he says, Lord, if you are willing. Now let me bore you with grammar for a minute. This phrase, if you are willing, is what we call a, and this is actually technically in the Greek called a third-class conditional statement. Isn't that exciting? Let's say that together. Third-class conditional. Ready? Third-class conditional. Isn't that awesome? Look at that. Look at that. Here's what that means. Here's why that matters. Because what I'm about to tell you is not my interpretation of the facts. This is just the facts. A first-class conditional statement is a strong if-then statement. In other words, let me put it this way to you. If I were to say to you, if I run into you after church and say, listen, I'm sorry, our car won't start, and it's just me, but if you are willing, could you give me a ride home? Most of you would be like, sure. And I will tell you, I will have a relatively high level of hope that my request to you would be granted. I might put that in the 90% likelihood. That's a first-class conditional. I kind of expect 
a positive answer to that. If I were in the same situation, I would say to you, my car won't start. If you are willing, would you give me your car? Forever. I would have a low possibility. Depending on your car, you might be like, sure, take this stupid thing. But, you know, the, most likely, I'm going to have a 5%, like, I mean, not even five, like, probably no way in the world. No one asks that. A low, very low likelihood of it happening. First class conditional is in a dating relationship. You just meet a girl, and things are working. You hit it off, and you know that she's going to say yes if you ask her out. And you say, hey, if, if you're willing, you, know, you want to go out Friday night? You're going to put it that way. But you know, if you're willing, you want to go out Friday night? You're feeling pretty good. She says yes. You go out with her for a little while. After a couple months, she's like, I think you're dumb. I don't know why I said yes in the first place. You know, I'm going to break up, and there we go. We're done. And then you get invited to her wedding. Which is awesome. And at, and at the wedding, then, the, the guy says, hey, um, here's the moment, you know, speak now or forever, hold your peace. And you raise your hand. And you say, hey, if you're willing, can I have one more date? Probably not going to happen. That's a third-class conditional if-then statement. So let me bore you with grammar to say this. The leper, third-class conditional. No expectation at all that Jesus is going to do what he asks him to do. That's just the grammar. That just <laughs> He is so exhausted and so out of hope that even the person who can provide the greatest hope for him, he has no hope even as he asks the question. And what Jesus does next is so profound. It is a world-changing narrative, what Jesus does next. It's so simple. But it is so profound because of what leprosy represents. Look at verse 13. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And this hadn't happened since Naaman. This doesn't happen. Leprosy, as the most feared disease in antiquity, fell to the gracious hand of God in that moment the most feared disease in antiquity because it represented not only slow physical death, but also spiritual separation from God, fell to the gracious hand of God when Jesus reached out and touched the unclean man. And the narrative changed in that moment. And I would argue this is why you and I see people who have issues like this differently today because of what Jesus did and how he treated people like this. See, no longer does what is unclean contaminate what is clean. This is the narrative changer. This is the game changer that Jesus instituted in this moment. No longer is he saying is what is unclean contaminate what is clean. Rather, what is clean cures what's unclean. And that is a game-changing perspective. That is a world-changing perspective. That is a spiritual adjustment of a seismic 
quality. Century upon century upon century upon century of religious tradition will say what is unclean contaminates what is clean. You've got to stay away from the leper. That's why the leper says, unclean, unclean, so that you can remain clean. If you touch the leper, you are unclean. You do not make the leper clean, but Jesus did. And he changes the narrative. And here's the struggle for anyone who is religious, anyone who has a spiritual background. There is a distance between these two that represent two different worldviews when it comes to how we relate to people who we put in these categories. There is a distance between these two worldviews that shapes how we see those around us who are different significantly than we are, who maybe we think deserve a little bit of what they got, who maybe we would prefer to be away from lest they contaminate us. There's the one worldview that says we've got to remain holy and righteous and separate from. This is what God wants, isn't it? Isn't it there somewhere in the Bible that says bad company corrupts good character? Like, I can make an argument that we should remain clean and free from that which separates us from God. Like, the unclean, we should remain away from that. That's what we should do. And then Jesus does this, and he says, wait a minute, what's clean actually cures what is unclean. Hold on, this is different. And this is such a big deal that Jesus does something next that is so profound. See, not only it wasn't good enough for Jesus just to heal this man, he then takes him and says to him, look at verse 14, what he says to him. He ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Don't tell the masses yet. Because they're going to misunderstand. They're going to think, and here's why he said that. They're going to think that a conquering king has come. The masses will think, oh, Jesus the Messiah is here. Conquering king has come. But Jesus is not ready to deal with all of that yet. That's not happening yet. So instead of that, Jesus says, go to the priest and tell him, here I am. Here's why he did that. Jesus is trying to force the issue. He's trying to force the issue. See, number one, in Leviticus 14, Leviticus 14, the priests would have the obligation of formally declaring someone who was clean from leprosy as able to be invited back into the community. In Leviticus 14, there are accommodations made for people who are cleansed from leprosy, if that were to happen. That involves killing one bird and dipping one bird into the blood of that other bird and letting that second bird fly free. And a couple of other things that go on in Leviticus 14. So Jesus is fulfilling the law, but then he's also putting this right in front of the religious leaders and saying, listen, face it. Face it. This person who was unclean, who you would rather throw stones at, who you didn't want to be a part of your life at all, This unclean man is now clean. And I'm going to put him in front of you and force you to do what you have to do. And that is authenticate it. And you, priest, who formerly walked on the other side of the road or threw stones or wouldn't buy an egg on the street where the guy would walk, you now, according to the law, have to authenticate it and give him his life back. He can now walk back into the community because he has a blessing from the priest. 
Jesus puts it right in front and says, look what I did. This is a game-changing moment. This man is healed from his leprosy. Forcing a decision between one of two worlds that either the most spiritual people should try to remain spiritual by being away from the contamination of the world. Or, maybe, when Jesus came to people like me, and people like you, and people like the leper, maybe Jesus is offering a corrective that says, what's clean now cures what is unclean before. All the people continued to come to see Jesus, by the way, and I imagine they would. He alone had the words of eternal life. And as this leper walks away from the temple, given his life back, authenticated by the priest, the world has subtly shifted, as Jesus says, Things are different now. So here's what I think that means. Number one, if you're here this morning, you're listening online later, and you're in the position where the leper was, maybe not ostracized from people, but maybe you're exhausted. Maybe you've lost hope. Maybe you don't know that if you call out to God that he would even respond. Maybe you feel like you're offering a third-class conditional God. If you are around, please answer me. I don't think you will, but please answer me. Jesus does that. But secondly, if you are here and you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what, here's what we know about what Jesus' followers are to do. And, and Jesus' followers are now his ambassadors. Like this, this, is, what, this is what Jesus' followers do, right? We, we are ambassadors of the message. The, the message and the hope of Jesus flows through his followers. Right? I mean, this is, is this not what followers do? Carry on the message and the hope of their leader? And so, what does this therefore mean? If I'm a follower of Jesus, what does this therefore mean? That I have to engage in a way that maybe I didn't expect to before, that the ancient scarlet letter of leprosy was gone because Jesus touched the people whom the religious leaders didn't want to touch that maybe the fears of contamination or the fears that we will get dirty in or become unholy with or our separation from validates our righteousness, like maybe all of that natural stuff that we can kind of lean into with our religion, maybe that's now outmoded and outdated because Jesus, when he came, he touched the leper. He didn't throw anything at him touched him. He said, I'm willing. I'm willing. You are clean. And so you've heard a question asked before. I forget how long ago this question really came to the fore. But it's a simple four-word question. It shows up. It's been marketed like crazy, and so it's a little annoying to me at times. But here's the question. What would Jesus do. You've heard that. You've seen that. Shows up in WWJD bracelets all over the place, or it had at least in the past. 
the question is still profound. What would Jesus do? What would he do in my school? What would he do in my school with all the people who are okay to leave that person out there and outside of the social group? Like, what would he do there? What would Jesus do with my neighbors who I don't really connect with, I don't really care about, I don't really... What would Jesus do with my coworkers? They just are weird. Like that one guy and that one lady, like, she's weird, I don't know, just a lot going on, maybe nothing going on up there, I don't know, but it is just weird things happening in that world. I don't know what's going on there. And what would Jesus do to the people who are most socially awkward or most socially ostracized? I don't know, like a leper. I don't know what he would do. What do you think? I mean, if we're Jesus' ambassadors, what does that mean for us? Not only to step into uncomfortable situations, but to step into situations where we think, ooh, we might become, quote-unquote, unclean as I walk into that relationship, as I do things to step in here or step in there. When Jesus touched the leper, he changed the game. And his message is, what is unclean does not contaminate what is clean, but what is clean cures what is unclean. And Jesus had the authority and the power to do that, which is why, church, as we keep walking into our community, we want to be like that. And we're not always going to be awesome at doing that. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm not always going to be awesome at doing that. But I'm going to tell you, that's what I want us to be doing. That's what I want us to be stepping into. When Jesus came, he could have healed the leper from a distance. Yep, you are clean. But he touched him. And when he touched him, he touched the scaly skin and the white hairs and put his hand on the most unclean thing that was existing in that world at that time and said, what's clean cures what is unclean. This is what Jesus' followers now do. We're his ambassadors, right? It's just, we're not Jesus. And so we're going to stumble along. But I'm telling you, it is a game changer for how we see the people around us who sometimes we can think, they deserve that. They shouldn't have been drinking so much. They shouldn't have been on that. They shouldn't have gone there. They shouldn't have given themselves over to. They shouldn't have been so free with themselves. They deserve what they get. And Jesus comes. The authority that he has to cleanse even the leper. And so, what would Jesus do? And I hope the story of the leper stays in your conscience as you ask that question, as you interact with your neighbor and your coworkers and your classmates. Now, Jesus not only had the authority to touch and cleanse the leper, he also used that authority to cleanse and clean and restore a paralytic. And when he did that, he sent a different message. Powerful, powerful message. That is the story for next week, part six of Friend of Sinners. Be glad to see you again next week. Will you pray with me? 
Our good God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to step into the Scriptures, to see what is there in front of us, and to engage with that. To see the stories, to understand them, and to understand how it impacts how we relate to the people around us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us unusual compassion, that you would help us break out of any long-standing prejudices or predispositions uh, to people who are very different than us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see where there are disconnects between our preferences and the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to do what Jesus would do, even where it is something that no other religious leader would do. I pray that you would give us the courage to be bold in following, in doing what we know that we should do, because it's what Jesus would do. Help us Lord, to see this world as you do, to see the brokenness not as signs of uncleanness and unrighteousness and unholiness, but to see the people around us as you saw us, sinners in need of a Savior. Help us to remember that while we were still in our sins, You sent your Son to die for us. So I pray that you would give us greater compassion than we have even to this point. Give us greater motivation and drive and passion to pray for, to care for, to serve our neighbors, our friends, our relatives in ways that we have been hesitant to do. And help us to remember the gospel cleanses and cleans, restores and gives us hope again. So Father, we thank you again for the good gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, to us. And give us courage to do what we know we need to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.